Father in heaven, I thank you so much for Rebecca, and I thank you so much for just the amazing woman of prayer that you have created in her. I know that every one of us here has been blessed by her in some way, and I pray, Lord, that you would push her aside and that you would just overflow through her, that we would hear your words spoken here today, that you would just move in a mighty way through this room and that you would give us each the message that you have for us. Be glorified, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thanks for sharing, Heather. You can go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're continuing in our series on the gospel at work today. It's focusing, we've been spending a couple months on this, focusing on how following King Jesus impacts the way that we think about work, and the way that we do our work. We've been going through a lot of questions. Pastor Matt and the preaching team here has been addressing a number of different topics that relate to career and vocation. How do we think about it from a biblical perspective, the work that we do? How do we share Christ in our workplace in an acceptable way? How do we get along with difficult people? How do we lead in a in a way that honors God. All of these different things we've been talking about. And today we're going to address a question that probably comes across the mind of believers at some point in our lives. And that is the question, is my work in a secular vocation, a job that doesn't on the outside seem to have anything specifically to do with God, just as valuable as the work of the pastor in the pulpit or the missionary in the orphanage. If I'm in a secular career, is that a waste of my life or is it somehow less meaningful in eternity than what the chaplains are doing, than what the full-time Christian workers are doing? The answer to that is found in God's word for us. And it It's easy to sum up in a sentence and say that God views all of our work with equal value when we do But the real question beneath the question is how do I do work in such a way that I'm fulfilling God's eternal purposes, even if I'm not drawing a paycheck from a 501c3? So I'd like to look today at the example of someone in scripture who is fulfilling God's purposes in vocations that could be considered secular. And his name is David. David may or may not be known in our generation, but in first century Israel, first century AD, he was famous. He was a hero of the history of the Jewish people. He was the man. And so when we look at Paul and Peter's sermons to Jewish people in the book of Acts, when they were preaching Christ, when they were preaching the gospel, they quoted from David often. They referred back to David, and they talked about him because he was known to their audience. He was highly respected. His words had weight. We see Peter and Paul describe David in ways like prophet because he spoke about the future and the coming Messiah. Patriarch, because he was a founding father in the nation of Israel. He was called a servant of God in the book of Acts. He's referred to as a man after God's own heart. 
And when we look at Acts 13, one of my favorite descriptions is given of King David. Acts 13.36 says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. This is an epitaph on his life given by Paul. He served the purpose of God in his own generation. Man, don't you want that to be said about your life someday? I want that to be said about my life at the end of the day. I serve the purpose of God in my own generation. How do we do that? How do we do that in the office, in the manufacturing plant, in the kitchen, in the home, in the workplace that God's put you in right now? David gives us several examples because he didn't do this as a priest. He didn't do this as a Levite. He didn't do this as a full-time minister in the tabernacle of God. That was a set of vocations that was reserved for a specific class of people in David's time, and it wasn't him. David did that as a shepherd. David served God's purpose as a soldier. David served God's purpose as a ruler in government. What can we learn from him? about serving God's purpose in our generation. Well, the first place that we find David in the pages of scripture is in 1 Samuel 16. The prophet Samuel was the spiritual leader of Israel at this time, and God was showing him he was about to anoint the next king, and he sent him to a town called Bethlehem to have a sacrifice there in sort of incognito Find this person that God was going to say, that's the next king. So Samuel said, we're going to have a special sacrifice celebration. He invited Jesse. He invited the elders of the town, the, the leaders of the people to all be present. And when he looked at all these people that were there, he couldn't find the one God wanted to show him. So here's what he said, 1 Samuel 16, 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. David was at the bottom of a very tall totem pole. He was the youngest of eight sons, and apparently he was given the most demeaning, the least desirable job left in the family, which was to be out in the fields with the sheep. He was considered of such little consequence that when this citywide gathering took place, he wasn't invited. But what we learn from David in this portion of his life, when he was a shepherd, when he was unknown, unnoticed, undervalued, and underappreciated, is that you and I can serve God's purpose in our workplace when we steward our obscurity. Steward your obscurity. David was faithful even when no one valued what he did. Now, I know that most jobs in the world today are undervalued. I know that because I don't value what all of you do very well. I don't know the effort you put in. I don't know the blood, sweat, and tears you've invested into your work. And yet what you do impacts the, the quality of life that I live in this society and in my nation. But I don't have the, the capacity to fully appreciate what you do because I don't see it. Some of you, beyond that, you're not really valued adequately by your superior, by your supervisor, by your clientele, because they don't realize what you're investing. 
But even when you aren't valued, when you aren't seen in your work, even when no one's holding you accountable to a standard of excellence, are you serving God's purpose even in obscurity? God made a commentary on David's life as a shepherd years down the road. After David had been promoted to king of the nation, this is what God said to him in 2 Samuel 7, jumping ahead to the next book of the Bible. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, God is quoted as saying of David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. See, when no one else saw David, God saw David. And God has a preference for this metaphor of shepherding. The word shepherd or shepherds or shepherdess is used 111 times in the ESV translation of the Bible. And it can refer to the physical job of tending sheep. But it can also refer to a human leader of a group of people. And it also is used by God himself to refer to his own leadership of his people. Why does God have such a preference for the metaphor of shepherding? Well, many teachers that I've heard have suggested it involves the, the strong resemblances between humans and sheep, none of which are complementary. <laughs> and I agree with that, but I also think on the flip side of the coin that there's an emphasis on the qualities of leadership that God esteems. Those are demonstrated in shepherding. Shepherding is not a type of leadership that involves empire building, vision casting, productivity increasing, project management, domineering, dominating. Shepherding is a leadership that emphasizes tending, nurturing, caring, feeding, and guiding. And when God was looking for a leader for his nation, he was looking for a shepherd. He was looking where no one else was looking. Out in the fields, out in the obscurity, out in the place where the whole town thought nothing significant was happening. And David was faithful in the unseen place of obscurity. And God was preparing him in his obscurity for the position of authority that he had waiting for him down the road. So are you stewarding your obscurity well? When no one else is watching in your workplace, are you faithful to tend the relationships, to tend the flocks, to tend the souls around you, even if no one will ever applaud you for it? I know that my supervisor in my current cafeteria job is a really great example of this to me because I've seen her so many times running from one job to another in the midst of a busy day and stopping and saying, are you okay? To me or to someone else? She sees, she notices when something's wrong and she cares. And she lets that person know. Steward your obscurity. The next phase of David's career that he got catapulted into was his career as a soldier, a warrior. And most of us have probably heard that famous battle 
between him and the Philistine champion Goliath. But that wasn't the pinnacle of his career as a soldier. That was the start. David quickly rose through the ranks of Israel's army to become a commander. And then his popularity became so great that King Saul saw him as a threat to the throne and started using him as target practice. So David had to go essentially into exile. And he began to lead a rogue band of warriors around doing their own independent fighting just outside of the range of King Saul. What made David so successful in warfare, in battle? Certainly there are many characteristics, but one of them that really set him apart is that David knew what battles to fight and what battles not to fight. And so what we learn from this season of his career is the principle that you and I need to steward our opportunity well. I'd like to look at two case studies that demonstrate how David did this. The first is in 1 Samuel 17, David against Goliath. When David was sent by a courier boy to his oldest three brothers, who were the ones really in King Saul's army at the time, he couldn't believe that the Philistine giant Goliath had been coming out for 40 days in a row, taunting Israel and mocking their God and challenging them just to send someone to fight him one-on-one. David couldn't believe that no one had taken him up on that challenge. And so he, seeming to be the most unlikely, the most unprepared, the most unqualified to face this guy, went out to meet him. And this is the conversation that took place In 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 44, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a, a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you, into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Wow! Where did this confidence come from? Where did this certainty come from that David knew against all odds he already had the victory in the bag? The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. David didn't go out to meet Goliath to prove that he was more than a shepherd. He didn't go out to to fight some kind of personal agenda, to 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 make something of himself. He went out because God's reputation was at stake. And when he saw that this was God's battle, he knew that God was going to fight. And when God fights, God doesn't lose. Look at case study number two. Jump ahead a few chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is a 
a few years down the road in David's life. He's hiding from Saul, who's headhunting him. David and his men are deep in the recesses of a cave. And who should walk into the front of the cave to use the loo but King Saul? And so we look at verse 4 of 1 Samuel 24. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Man, the golden opportunity was sitting before him. He could be rid of his biggest problem in life. And it was Saul that started it. It was Saul that was chasing him down to kill him. What made David run towards his enemy one time and leave his enemy the other time? He recognized the difference between a battle that God was calling him to fight and a battle that was not his to fight. He had the discernment. You and I don't have a lack of opportunities in our day and age. We don't have a lack of conflicts around us. We don't have a lack of causes. We don't have a lack of problems or drama in the workplace or issues to be addressed. Sometimes our greatest need isn't more battles or more opportunities. It's the wisdom to know which one is God's battle for us to fight. How do we do that? Well, we do what David did. David was seeking God constantly, abiding in God's presence, praying things like he prayed in Psalm 25. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Show me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. You are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. This was his relationship with God. And we have the Holy Spirit. We can ask him to show us, is this your battle? Is this where you're working, God? Is this where you want me engaging? Or is this a distraction? Is this a diversion? See, I'm convinced that one of our spiritual enemies' greatest tactics to render Christians useless, to render Christians ineffective in our world, is to keep us occupied our entire lives fighting the wrong battles. And we wonder why we don't have more victory. <laughs> At least I do sometimes. Why don't I have more victory, God? Maybe it's because I'm chasing after the wrong battles every day. Steward your opportunity. After King Saul died, and after King Saul's sons died, David did ascend to the throne of Israel, the place that God had promised him he would be. But the significant thing about David's reign as king wasn't David. It was the position that David had in the historic redemptive plan of God. 
And that really came to light for David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so jumping to the next book of the Bible. David had this grand idea, now that he was in a place of prosperity, now that he was in a place of success, I'm going to build God a temple. Now that I have the means, now that I have the freedom to do what I want to do, I'm going to do something great for God. I want him to be worshipped the way he deserves. I want him to be worshipped in the, in the grandeur that he's worthy of. It sounded like a great idea. But God came back to David with a different perspective. And we read that in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to start up in verse 9. This is directly following the sentence we looked at earlier where God said, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And God goes on. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This house word is referring to a dynasty. God is essentially using a play on words, saying, you wanted to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. He's talking about a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is called God's covenant with David or the Davidic covenant because this is not just God saying, I like you, David. Let me do something nice for you. This is God saying, David, your reign as king is not about you. There's something so much bigger that I'm doing here, and it goes way beyond your lifetime, and it goes beyond your son's lifetime, and it's going to be something of the size and the magnitude that will last forever. I'm building the house, David, and you get to be a part of it. Brothers and sisters, you and I probably, if you know Jesus, you want to do something great for him. If you're ambitious in your career, no doubt you have some great aspirations. But God has come to us through his word to say, your life is not about what you're going to accomplish in your lifetime. I am doing something so much bigger, and you get to be a part of it. Steward your legacy. Steward your legacy. See, David reigned as king in such a way so that he could prepare his son, Solomon, to exceed him and not just succeed him. 
And then he lived in such a way so that he could prepare his nation to receive the son of David who would reign forever. David stewarded his legacy. That is what made him such an iconic person in the history of Israel. He pointed them ahead to the coming king of kings. How can you and I steward our legacy well? Think about the end of your current role. None of us are in our role forever. The place where you work, you know you're not going to be there for the rest of your life. There's an end date. Many of you in this room, you already know the end date, or you know approximately when you'll be moving on. Some of us don't know that end date yet, but it's temporary. What are you going to leave behind in your workplace when your time there is up? Is the office going to fall apart because you're not there holding it together? Are you preparing the way so that whoever fills your shoes can exceed you and not just succeed you? Are you setting your organization, your unit, your, your corporation up to, to achieve greater success after you're gone than they even have while you're there? Are you preparing the way for people around you to receive King Jesus into their lives, even if they don't do it while you're part of their lives? What's your legacy going to be? I think of Pastor Matt as a great example of this. And the reason is that he knew and knows in this role as pastor of this church, he doesn't have people here for a very long time. The vast majority of our church family are here for three to four years. And Pastor Matt is very intentional about investing in people in such a way that he can build them up, that he can disciple them, that he can raise up leaders who will go off and lead and disciple others somewhere else. But he's making an investment for a legacy that's going to continue on after these relationships have lived their season. Steward your legacy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we get this picture of each of us being a part of the greater work of God. And it uses that same metaphor of God building a house. The word says in 1 Peter 2 verse 4, As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, he's the cornerstone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you and I all have a priesthood, but it's not our vocation. It's our spiritual connection to God that we bring into whatever vocation we have. You and I, if you've put your trust in Christ, if you've made him Lord of your life, we are the stones in the house that God is building. We get to be part of something so much bigger than any one of our lives individually. 
Are you stewarding your legacy? Steward your obscurity. Be faithful to God. Tend the flock he's given you, even when no one is watching. Steward your opportunity. Seek the Holy Spirit for the battles that he's calling you to fight. And discernment to recognize ones that are not yours to fight. Steward your legacy. David served the purpose of God in his generation. He did it well, even in a secular vocation. You and I can too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the examples that you've given us on the pages of Scripture that just give us some signposts, some principles that we can live by to maximize the impact and the significance of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us. You've called us to be where we're at. You've called us to the jobs, to the workplaces, to the careers that we have. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to live with intentionality and with perspective where we're at so that it won't be wasted. It won't be viewed as, as the less significant thing. Lord, we don't have to to downplay or minimize our work because you see what we do. You see where we're at. I pray, Lord, that each person here would be able to walk into their workplace this week with a greater perspective on your view of what they're doing and the ability to seek you to make an impact right where you have us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for coming and worshiping with us today. Again, if it's your first Sunday, please visit our info table for a gift before you leave. Please remember to pick up your chair.